I would love to thank David Joseph Moody and Ian Poe for being patrons of this podcast. Solved Unsolved Mysteries Update Update 1 Hey everybody, welcome to the update episode 1, which is like episode 5.5 of the SUM podcast. In this episode, we'll start taking a look back at the first five episodes I finished in the uh, three years since I started doing this, four years, and update and expand on some topics we already discussed. They're going to be a little bit more on the loosey-goosey side. They should be a little bit shorter, and I'm probably not going to do the fully edited video thing. I just want to get something out a little bit faster because the other ones take so long. It's kind of sad to see a dead feed for six months every time that I make something. We will be reviewing two stories from previous episodes. Further expanding on details where I fudged up and just didn't include information and starting a discussion that you can participate in via the comments or on Patreon. This episode is going to be available for patrons one week early and patrons in any paid tiers can participate in a group discussion about the episode on the site with me if they want. Early content is a perk for the middle tier and the mystery solver tier. Come join us. Today we're talking about a theme. Is a person defined by their worst act? I know that sounds like a serious, <laughs> serious question. How do I never spell check this before I print it? I know that sounds like a serious question to ask from the podcast that brought you both accusing a man of having sex with insects and accusing another for being an actual humanoid layer cake, but two previous stories struck me as having a similar crime and then a similar small following of people online who profess their good qualities, albeit one much more than the other. And such is natural for many cases. You go online and they will always have someone who doesn't believe they committed the crime or even people who believe the crime was committed justly and they should not be punished for it. Before we get into it, I want to talk about tone a little bit. Nobody said anything to me about it. I just want to have a talk real quick. I think about this a lot. <clears throat> Hold on. I can't forget that I'm supposed to drink a beer for some reason in all these episodes. Premium Ebisu. Oh, man, that stuff's so good. I think about tone a lot in my podcast work here. Am I actually being too disrespectful of these real crime stories by making fifth grader jokes and photoshopping people's heads onto internet memes? Some people will say yes, some people will say no, some people don't care. I think personally it really matters what types of jokes you make and your intent. My humorizing these stories is really to lessen the sad sinking feeling you get when you hear them and because I feel like the only people who are worthy of bullying are rapists, murderers, Ted Cruz. It's a way to make a non-fun subject more fun, uh, laugh at the danger of it maybe, and be a bit more entertaining, and honestly give a, a sort of emotional distance. The whole modern comedy adjacent crime and history podcast thing just isn't for a lot of people, I guess, and I understand why they don't like it. 
And I really understand if you wouldn't like this podcast. It's a little rough. I'm not a comedian and I'm not a researcher or a lawyer. I'm just a guy who likes making stuff like this and spreading information about crimes and spooky stories and stuff like that around. I do think about the families involved in the episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, and from here on, I'll try my best to not include people in the jokey parts if they aren't the actual perpetrators or it has nothing to do with the actual TV show part. I think I've done like okay at that so far, but I'm just going to try to keep it in mind from now on. For a lot of people, these stories are the worst moments of their lives, or it's the story of how they lost their lives. I try to take the subject seriously, but myself not seriously, and as these episodes come out, I hope to keep improving myself and the podcast, and I will thank you personally if you come along. Pay me money and I'll do it on the podcast, www.patreon.com forward slash destructoblog. Anyway, that's kind of my spiel about these minisodes. They might be a little bit more serious, they might be a little bit... Well, they're probably going to be way less serious at certain points. They're going to be shorter. They're going to be a little bit less of everything, but they're going to be a something that you can listen to it. And I want them to actually be fit within the show and be fun. So anyway, this episode is a bit more serious and deals with serious topics in more detail than I had originally given. And we'll start with one of my least favorite stories. Yount and Broadbeck. I've cooled off a little bit on my deep, uncontrollable hatred for thinking about these two and took another look around at some stuff I could have included in my two episodes where I briefly go over their story. Anyway, there are, slash were, apparently, a group of people who actually thought of John Yount as a changed person and advocated for his release, or at least for a possible parole or a lighter sentence, based on all the apparently great things he did all the time since murdering a young girl and breaking out of prison and stealing a dude's wife that one time. I mean, before I get into this, he could have been a real nice person aside from the rape and murder of a young girl. Like, if he hadn't raped and murdered a young girl, he would have probably have been a pretty okay guy. But there was that problem, that small issue where he raped and murdered a girl. Found on the site prisonersofthecensus.org, a blog post in memoriam of John Yount. Remember, okay, sidebar again. Let's go back. Yount committed suicide in prison at the age of 74 in 2012. I didn't really go into what he did with his life that much in the episode because at the time, I just didn't give a shit. I had sat through a lot of reading about what he did and how it affected those around him, how he walked away from prison how he conned a woman to leave her husband and join him, and how he was finally brought back behind bars. Again, I know I just repeated it a bunch of times, but he raped an 18-year-old girl, allegedly. Part of that is kind of, we'll talk about it. A girl who he taught in his math class, a girl he was an authority figure to, and then he beat her over the head with a wrench, and then he cut her throat. Later, once the police found her body, he would eventually confess. He was 27 years old when he did that. So, after researching that story and reading the details of it for hours, I just chucked a lot of the personal stuff about him because the story shouldn't be about him. But after reviewing some of this stuff, it does ask interesting questions that I'm not qualified to answer, but maybe you leave a comment or something and maybe we can discuss it together and have like a communication thing. Okay, sorry, prisonersofthecensus.org has a memorial page of John Yount. 
The author is Peter Wagner, who apparently had correspondence with John Yao. On that page, under a heading called, quote, The Offense and the Trials, there is a paragraph that irks me somewhat, and I'm curious how other people feel about it. I'll read it directly from the site, which will be cited in text wherever you're listening. You can go to the description box. John Yount committed a horrible murder in 1966 when he was 27 years old. In a few moments, a young woman's life ended forever. And in the eyes of the state of Pennsylvania, those moments were to define the rest of John's life. He rejected the state's view and spent the rest of his life showing to himself and those who were watching that he was much better than his worst act. What John Yount actually did with his life after he was recaptured, I'll get into in a moment, but this statement really seems to gloss over the severity of the crime he committed and, in my opinion, softens the murder and rape of a young girl by reinforcing it was A, a long time ago, B, he was 27, I, I don't know what, and he's an adult, so C, it was a single moment in time, it was a few moments when Yount seemingly never behaved this way before or after. Okay, then. The author continues to state that, quote, John's first conviction was thrown out because the police had violated his constitutional rights. And then in parentheses, the Supreme Court's landmark Miranda case protecting defendants from unconstitutional interrogation techniques came down after his arrest. At his second trial, 77% of the jury pool in the small rural community was familiar with the case and had already formed an opinion against him. Worse, 8 out of the 14 jurors stated their bias and were kept on the jury anyway. The judge refused to move the trial. Alright, okay. So, this murder happened in a small community in rural Pennsylvania. Between, well, I feel like I pronounced all those words weird. Between an algebra teacher and a student, finding a jury pool that doesn't know about the crime would be difficult to do, and finding one without a previous bias would be even harder. Should they have put forth extra effort to form a jury with no bias? Of course, the author is correct there, absolutely. He mentions that the first conviction was thrown out because the police violated his constitutional rights, but doesn't explain what happened. Weirdly, the exact court opinions he said he reread make it pretty clear. www.courtlistener.com provides me with an easy-to-find court opinion. Thank you. 1969's Commonwealth v. Yount argued in March of that same year, gives a very detailed summary of the original case at hand. As mentioned in the UM episode, and by me about a minute ago, Yount actually approached the police to turn himself in and confess to the murder. So, it's sort of weird why we're focusing so hard on how his court cases should have been turned over due to albeit important, technical legalities. Because, you know, he told everyone he murdered the girl. From the court opinion, quote, Early on the morning of April 29, 1966, appellant, a teacher at the high school which the deceased attended, 
appeared at the state police substation in Dubois or Dubois, Pennsylvania, and stated that, quote, I am the man you are looking for. When asked by a policeman whether he was referring to the incident in Luthersburg, appellant replied affirmatively. At this point, appellant was invited to sit down and was given something to eat. One of the officers then began questioning appellant, asking him, how did you kill that girl? According to the officer, appellant replied, I struck her with a wrench and I choked her. The officer here gave appellant warnings which the Commonwealth concedes did not include appellant's right to free counsel if he could not afford his own attorney. The conference recommenced and appellant gave his first confession. Later, appellant was questioned by the district attorney who again failed to tell appellant of his right to free counsel and appellant gave another confession. So, here, what we are now debating seemingly is is Yount actually a bad person if his whole life was peaches and creme aside from murdering a young girl with a wrench and cutting her throat and should he be in jail for the rest of his life if he was not told he had a right to free legal counsel while he was eating a McDouble and explaining why he murdered a girl I feel like that was a statement that became a question I completely agree that it seems suspicious if you look at the letter of the law that was violated in Yount's case, but like, we aren't discussing whether or not a man committed a crime. We know he committed the crime. We're debating about whether or not the confession should be admissible as evidence in court, no? And if so, why are we pretending like he's a real nice guy because the cops and the DA fucked up the whole free lawyer thing? And how the fuck did we end up on this website called prisonersofthecensus.org? Because Yount actually became a lawyer in prison. He dedicated his life inside to writing, researching, and trying his best to affect positive change for prison reform and legislative districting. A big issue at the time, an issue he actually sort of blew the whistle on, was how the census counted prisoners in a district as regular as populace and didn't account for the fact that they were forced to live there, therefore district spending, voting, and a slew of other tax-related and voting power-related issues came forth. They were basically being counted as regular citizens but couldn't vote, couldn't choose to move, obviously, and their inclusion fucked up a lot of shit but ultimately didn't cause that big of a problem for federal funds once it was thoroughly researched after the fact, I guess, according to the author. But this issue of miscounting or intentionally counting prisoners as regular voting citizens caused a huge issue with gerrymandering voting districts. Later on in the early 2010s, Yount worked hard to get the census to change how it publishes its data, which then changed how voting districts may be drawn for different political parties, which has a huge, huge impact on how elections in America are won. But upon this discovery, others also discovered that Yount had already been writing incredibly detailed theses on such subjects for some time. Yount was very smart. He seemed to really care about the injustices within the prison system and worked very hard to see that they were noticed and rectified. 
A lot of the links are dead now, but prisonpolicy.org has some archived writings he did about government, prison policy, and politics, as well as some somewhat favorable news articles about him and his life story. I also love to just show the photo of him they have on there, but it's it's copyright is clearly stated underneath it, and I'm, I'm pretty certain I can't just reproduce it, so I'll add a link to this archive wherever you're listening or watching. In the photo, he'd be adorable if he wasn't a convicted killer. Anyway, back to prisonersofthecensus.org, my favorite website. Yount filed lawsuits and helped organize in several big court cases, such as Mixon v. Commonwealth, which basically was about how Pennsylvania didn't want anyone in prison, or Peppel. Peppel. Fucking Peppel. Peppel, not people. Jesus Christ. People recently released from prison from voting. Yount v. T-Netics had John fighting against... Jeez. I completely... Yount v. T-Netics had John fighting against a completely ridiculous prison monopoly where this terribly named phone company would charge ridiculous phone call rates to prisoners who were banned from using regular utility phone services. They basically made the prices as high as possible and then gave the prison kickbacks for allowing the services to continue, which seems pretty insanely illegal, and to add further insult to serious injury, the system was horribly unreliable and would disconnect people for no reason, requiring them to pay for a new call again. Yount successfully got Teenetics to refund a lot of the bullshit fees, but in return the prison system got pissed and had him transferred far away from friends and family for making trouble. He also campaigned against the use of non-prison addresses for voting registration for long-timers and a variety of other political issues, most recently the issue of parole boards and the entire point of parole. Being a prison lawyer in prison, he basically became an expert on how parole boards worked. And in his opinion, they often don't really provide a valid point or service. The point of a parole board is to determine if you are rehabilitated enough to rejoin society, have paid your debt, and to provide a roadmap to rejoin the rest of us outside of what are probably very stinky and poorly painted booger-smeared walls. The parole board became more about artificially creating exacting hoops for people to jump through perfectly and focused much more on the original criminal act rather than whether the person has changed or would commit a crime again. Additionally, he was featured in the 1996 book Doing Life, Reflections of Men and Women Serving Life Sentences. Actually, where the adorable photo of him comes from. I tried to get the book, but the delivery time to Japan was really long for some reason. But the author of this article reproduces a quote from John from the book, which I will reproduce again for you now in audio. Technology. When something happens, I can't go in, close the door, turn on the television, and ignore it like some people do. Me, I have to confront. If I don't like something, I have to deal with it. If it's filing a complaint, if it's filing a brief in court, if it's trying to change something within the prison system, when there's something that bothers me, 
that's the way I deal with things. All of this information uh, from prisonersofthecensus.org on a blog post written by Peter Wagner in 2012. Before I bloviate further with any of my uh, own personal observations or opinions, I'd like to read one more bit uh, from another positive article written about Yount after his death. From a website called DescentMagazine.org, authors James Kilgore and Teresa Barnes, June 6, 2012. The title is John Yount, A Man Transformed. So, again, the beginning of this particular article does what the previous one did, where it sort of fits Pamela Sue Reimer's entire life and death into like three sentences or so, and then talks about how Yount was an anti-racist, intellectual, freedom-loving, criminal justice reforming guy who killed a girl once or something that's not important. We're talking about change. Change? Change. A Kafkaesque change into a prison lawyer, bug man. Quote from John Yount. If you just sit around all the time and try to find out what's wrong with yourself, instead of looking for positive things that you bring to this world, you end up being a much lesser individual than you are capable of, and less than society wants you to be. This is what John Yount said of his transformation into being a lawyer and criminal reformer person in prison. And a bug. And I gotta say, he's right. I'm gonna say things about this later that make it funny and then mean and then serious. I'm setting up for that. This article does make mention of the show Unsolved Mysteries, and the way it is framed is a tad strange to me. Firstly, the authors mentioned that, quote, when he first entered prison, the average term for a person doing life for first-degree murder was 12 years. In 1986, after he had spent nearly two decades behind bars as a model citizen, he became frustrated by repeated denials of his requests for sentence commutation. So, this is his reasoning for leaving the prison yard and running away with Diane Broadbeck from the episode, thus running from the law, thus she's reported missing, thus the episode of Unsolved Mysteries happens. And I apologize again for using such long quotes here, but cutting out anything removes the subtext I'm trying to talk about here, so it's, it's kind of important. So here's a bit more. Quote, For two and a half years, using the name Jim Forsgren, Yount lived in Idaho where he and Diane established themselves as caring and responsible citizens of the community. However, when his case appeared on the network TV series Unsolved Mysteries, a neighbor turned them in. Though his Idaho landlord and other neighbors assured the courts they would provide Yount with housing and welcome him back to their community, the authorities refused to commute his life sentence. Yount was to be stuck inside forever. Okay, can we chill a little bit here? Are we just trying to like tell this from his perspective or are we taking his perspective? The Cliff's Notes version of the story here is that this guy who yeah, yeah, married a girl or whatever went to prison. He stayed in prison for 20 years. He had a life sentence. Then he starts writing letters to a married lady. Married lady disappears and girl killer guy disappears. That's what their traitor neighbors knew. That's what the public knew. So like 
Why are we acting like we're so surprised he wasn't getting a sentence commutation? And then when he was recaptured after escaping prison, we're like, oh my goodness, he's never getting out now. He was to be stuck inside forever. It's just like the subtle softening of everything here is irritating to me. I'm not trying to assassinate the character or like call out the authors of this piece here, but it, it seems like there are so many of these articles that only want to focus on the positives of this man and his honestly pretty amazing story of becoming a lawyer and trying to better himself and others in the prison system. But can we not pretend like he isn't in prison in the first place for some really horrible shit and then fucking escaped prison and went on the run? If you think I'm being a little harsh, here is how the article ends. Quote, But Yount's lifer colleagues were central to his transformation from a conservative, small-town, white teacher into an anti-racist intellectual with a powerful critique of the system of mass incarceration and a nuanced understanding of national and world politics. Further, there are good ways to honor the memory of John Yount, a man who should be remembered. This system hounded Yount to his death, rather than recognizing and rewarding him for his contributions to advancing the human rights of the colleagues and comrades from whom he drew his strength. We are now fully forgetting the girl killer thing. Okay, so I've waited until the end here to talk about the thing that always really bothered me about this story. I mean, everything bothered me about it, but... Reportedly, from what Yount said, the interaction with Pamela Reimer went bad after he picked her up in his car that fateful day. Remember, he was her math teacher. They knew each other. He had made some comment or joke he didn't specify that she took offense to and tried to get out of his car. And she threatened to tell other people what he said uh, and basically fuck up his reputation. And then he loses his temper. There's a struggle. He kills her. He's admitted to this. He told people this is what happened several times. So, the rape part of this case was based on inferences Yount made in the original confession. But he never would outright say he raped the girl. He would later actually deny making any sexual advances at all. The rape part of the story was actually dropped from the second trial mentioned earlier that was necessary because nobody told him about, like, whatever, freelawyers.com or something. So this part of the story was seemingly removed from the retrial. So, basically, you know like in movies whenever they have to let the guy go because they forgot to read him his Miranda rights? The part of the trial where they could prove that he was a rapist was thrown out because they couldn't use the original confession where he talked about it. Um, yeah. The issue I have with this is that there was a thorough examination of Pamela Sue Reimer's body. The body was not shown to have typical evidence of rape. Her hymen was intact. And there were only small bruises on her thighs that the medical examiner himself basically said it could have been from anything. The problem is there was sperm found inside the vagina of the deceased. So the reason he stops her is more clear to me with this evidence thrown in the opinion for the original trial. He may not have conventionally raped her, but there was some kind of sexual contact with him 
Or it's a weird coincidence that a girl's body would show up with someone's sperm inside with an intact hymen and no obvious sign of genital injury. And a man comes to the police station and admits that he's the one that murdered her. So maybe he didn't traditionally rape her, but like, you know what? I don't want to think about it. You do it. So with all the things laid out, we have a man who very likely raped a young girl in some way, a student of his who admits to uh, <clears throat> who he admits to murdering in a brutal scene, which the court opinion depicted uh, a young girl covered in blood with blood pooled in her lungs and several severe head injuries, who then confesses to the murder part, then fights with the court over technicalities to remove the rape charges, who then becomes a model prisoner in order to court sentence commutation, who then believes no commutation will happen, and then begins a writing correspondence with a woman who has just enough access and means to help him break out of prison, which will be easy because his good behavior has earned him outdoor partially supervised work he easily stalks off from and runs away with a woman to live on the outside for two and a half years as Frank Frankson or some dumb bullshit who is caught because a concerned neighbor who was concerned for the right fucking reasons called the show and reported an escaped convict then sending that convict back in prison, sealing their fate for sure this time, who then wants to change and become a good person who affects positive change in others and who helps people to get cheaper phones and helps people to vote and shit after years of trying to get his sentence reduced or commuted or whatever the fuck, kills himself at age 74, and then a lot of people write nice articles about how he was such an amazing and cool dude. Wow, neat. Ooh, okay. <clears throat> Look. What he did for prison reform was actually good. I'm not a fucking asshole. Well, maybe. He did seem like a caring person. I don't know. He even seemed like a good neighbor, by all reports he was. And I even understand why people look on his story fondly and commend his efforts to make positive change in the world. But we can't forget what he did to set this chain of events forward. Is one man only as good as his worst moment or his worst few moments? As one of the authors put it, I'm not sure. It depends. But was it one moment or a few moments to see Pamela on the road, to stop, to offer her a ride, to initiate contact with her that she was uncomfortable with, to take her somewhere nobody would find her, to strangle her, to strike her, possibly rape her in some way, cut her throat, and watch her choke to death on her own blood. The actual coroner stated cause of death. He made a decision, and then another, and then another, and then he felt bad about it. It escalated, and turned himself in to the police. And then he tried to be good, seemingly, and then he stopped and he ran away and then he was caught and then he tried to be good again he was a murderer he was a lawyer he was a civil rights activist he was a deeply flawed human being and a really shitty algebra teacher i can understand him trying to have a life and move away from such a terrible thing to commute his sentence to be free 
but he did something permanent and horrible to someone that he just can't ever repay. That's why we have a justice system in the first place. It was flawed in this case. They made mistakes. They, But you can't just decide to end your own punishment for something that you did and pretend it didn't happen because it's convenient. If you met a John Yao, would you shake their hand? Would you eat dinner with them? Play Street Fighter 2 once nest with them? Could you befriend them? See them move about in their life, have success, and live free, knowing they cut a girl's throat and watched her die. And when she tried to scream for help, he beat her unconscious. And even if that person that did that truly changed, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure about me. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I, I'm not actually sure. This is very like Psycho or Psycho 2. I, I don't think I would have trusted Norman Bates in Psycho 2, but... I think everyone trying to only remember him as a prison reform hero are maybe wrong. And I even think my previous episode shitting all over him and being unwilling to even care about his story was maybe wrong, although very cathartic. You can't cut out the good or the bad and tell the story honestly. And honestly, I think him trying to change and become a good person is a really good thing. There's no good way to try to put a murder behind you. You can't. But you can try to be good, and that's good. That's my belief. But my opinion, my opinion is I still hate him in Broadbeck, and I hate math. God damn it, long division can divide my cheeks. Like, do you have any idea what my search history looks like right now? I actually had to Google several times, uh, like literally tried Googling about like unbroken hymens with sperm in them and how rape cases and rape kits worked in the 60s. And I just, I couldn't read any more of this shit. It's horrible. And I'm waiting for more spooky ghost stories. Please, please God. <sighs> Sources. Law.justia.com forward slash cases forward slash Pennsylvania forward slash Supreme Court forward slash 1974 forward slash 445 PA 3030 forward slash opinion 1958453 forward slash Commonwealth dash V dash Yount forward slash www.sentmagazine.org online underscore articles forward slash John Yount a man transformed. Oh, he's a cunt in disguise www.prisonersofthecensus.org forward slash news forward slash 2012 forward slash 05 forward slash 22 John E. Yount www.prisonpolicy.org forward slash scans forward slash Yount Topic 2 Joe Shepard A Non-Transformation Is a man only as good as his worst act? Just for a refresher, Joe Shepard is the guy that murdered a 15-year-old girl named Roxanne because she didn't want to have sex with him, and he was a tiny penis fuckface. Sorry, sorry, I'll be good. He died in 2010 after a lifetime of being a fucking idiot. Shit, I fucked it up already. Don't take it from me. Uh, upon sentencing, a judge told him, quote, You do not possess any redeeming qualities and should not live among civilized people. It's pretty fucking harsh. From the AP, a quote from a Bradley County Judge Mayo Mayo Mashburn. What? <laughs> Mayo Mashburn? Is that right? Did I mistype that? 
What a name. Upon his sentencing after being caught after escaping authorities. Man, we're already fucking off the rails. Okay, so back when I did this episode, I didn't add like pictures of a lot of the people profiled in the episodes. I just wanted to make note on YouTube or wherever you can see or hear this that this photo, either linked in the description or on screen, is what Joe Shepard looked like. He doesn't get a big long thing about can a man truly change his ways? Because as far as I could tell, he was a stupid asshole his whole life. And this is one of the most embarrassing mugshots I've ever seen in my life with that chin beard. He looks like a black and white upside down tin tin. God damn it, I hate it. Okay, sure. He was a man. He was a real person. He apparently had a lot of kids and grandkids. That's sad. And I'm sorry for saying he was a fuckface and I hate his beard, but... It's true, and he murdered a child. Two. Uh, man, so many people told me my excessive swearing is unprofessional. I'm sorry. Apparently, he had a very low IQ, like 88 or 90 or something close to my own. And he had a, a quote, rough childhood. But I don't know what that entails exactly. It was implied that maybe he was beaten up bad enough that it gave him a low IQ, but it wasn't specific. Who we are is, of course, a combination of predestination and environment. Sure, okay. I don't even know. I don't even need to say that. My point here is that I've actually seen friends and family commenting online saying Joe didn't do the crimes and that he was actually a good person. He was a good dad. He was a good this or that. But let's remind ourselves that there were two dead young teenage girls with the same M.O., the first girl was Kathy Clowers, age 16. She was found in a shallow grave. One pant leg covering her face or upper body, the reports vary, but the pant leg was wrapped around her in a deliberate way before burial. Joe Shepard denied killing her, assaulting her, and burying her, but he knew details of her disappearance and the exact location where she was buried. And he was the person who led police to her location. She disappeared in 1976 when Joe was 21 years old. Reportedly, according to a court opinion summarizing the case where he appealed his conviction in the early 90s, court testimony was heard that Clowers was in the special education program and that she had, quote, the mental capabilities of a much younger person. Furthermore, the condition of her body was something I really glossed over in the original episode, and thankfully that information was given via the court opinion to give further context of the situation and both to why I'm sure Joe was a murderer and why I feel pretty okay in calling him childish names. From State v. Shepard, quote, Dr. Bass testified that the grave had been dug and a jean jacket placed at the bottom. A leg of a pair of blue jeans was on the ground and folded over the skull, covering it, with the remainder of the pants covering the torso. The pants were unzipped with the zipper corroded open. The bra had been removed and was over the left arm. The panties had been removed and were placed in the grave in the area of the knees. The only clothing remaining on the body was a red shirt. The second girl, Roxanne Woodson, age 15, was buried 
right in his parents' yard. He was the last person seen with her on the night by several witnesses. I don't want to keep repeating myself. Like with Clowers, there were friends partying drugs and she went missing. Her body, too, was left with clothing missing from her body, with her pants covering the torso and one pant leg wrapped around the head. According to the same appeal opinion, there was a lot of testimony about his contact with the girls and other women he reportedly raped, who testified against his character at trial. By the way, the full caseload at the time for Joe Shepard was 1976, the murder of Kathy Clowers. 1977, Joe Shepard was charged with the rape of two other women. 1978, charged with aggravated assault on two law enforcement officers. 1978, kidnapping and rape of two different women. His be an asshole, get an asshole free punch card was full. <laughs> that, joke, that joke almost made no sense, but I was like picturing getting a free Subway sandwich while I read it. His ex-girlfriend named Peggy Raper Stanley, who, by the way, killed her own abusive father at age 15, which is a detail for some reason, had two children with Joe before they broke up in 1978. So he would have been 23 at the time. 1978, which by the way, was the year Roxanne was killed. She states he would frequently stop by the area where Kathy Clower's body was ultimately found, claiming he was checking on some weed plants he had there, which nobody ever saw. Drugs, by the way, were a huge part of this story. Lots of people doing lots of drugs, passing out, not knowing where people went, and noticing Joe always had these white prescription pills he'd try to give to girls, and disappearing with young girls alone, only to have the girls emerge later, crying, begging to return home. It's a pretty big court opinion to read. I'll link it in the description box if you want to read it, but it's pretty damning. I'll summarize it real quick. The implication based on testimony is that he liked to drug young girls with these, quote, nerve pills he got, and there are several rumors about he and other young men drugging girls or drugging a girl and thinking she was dead so they buried her, or it was just him and nobody else. But because Clower's body wasn't found until much later, it was impossible to determine if she died of an overdose or anything like that. The Emmy said it looked like an intentional killing, especially because of how the body was prepared and left. It looked like she was raped and killed, or drugged and raped and killed, or drugged and raped and left for dead. We know she was drugged and buried, and Joe's white pills were a prescription in his name, and that chemical compound was found in her remains. The actual way she died was unclear because the ME was working with skeletal remains and brain tissue. He maintained until his death that the killings were done by, quote, two boys. The details of who these boys were and the story along with that, I couldn't locate. So, with the information given, his knowledge of all the victims, the locations of their bodies, the drugs in his name in the system of one of them, said bodies prepared the same way upon burial, 
mountains of testimony that he assaulted multiple women and drugged them and at least four rape charges, including two for kidnapping, testimony of him visiting the dub site repeatedly, testimony of him admitting to the crimes on several occasions. There is absolutely no question that he did these killings. Do these things make it impossible for him to be a good dad? be a good provider, a good husband, a good bowler. Maybe not. After all, even BTK's daughter forgave him for some reason. In cases like this, only being remembered for the bad things you did is probably fine. It's not my job to tell other people what to think or how to feel. I just tell you what happened and burp and make profanity-laced arguments. I am curious, though, what the audience thinks about these two stories and how they're related. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can join me on Patreon page for this episode where we can discuss aspects of the cases or more broadly, the question about how much a bad person does, how much good they do, and like, how does that shake out? It's almost like there's some sort of like scales of justice or something like that. Man, I should like trademark that. This is pretty basic philosophical stuff, but it's interesting when there are people on the side of murderers who want to defend their honor for some reason. We do live in an interesting time where it seems like, at least in America, people can sort of create alternate facts and realities around situations and live in their own little belief bubbles. So step out of your bubble and give me all of your money and come join us. I promise not to brand any of you with the podcast logo, but... I might make you swear an oath of allegiance to the Muppet Babies or something just to get, like, weird headlines. All right, thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. The sources used to create this update episode are in the description box and also on www.destructoblog.com in the podcast section. That website needs to be updated. Update Episode 2 is coming sooner than you may think. And episode 6 is still admittedly pretty... It's, it's in early production. The next episode 6 is kind of boring. That's part of the reason why I started these minisodes. Other videos are officially on hiatus because nobody watches them, which is fine. They just aren't a priority right now. On a personal note, we have just moved house and shit's crazy. I'm setting up an office in our new place as an official podcast studio and place to shoot video thingies. Uh, cassette editions were late this month. I'm terrible. I'm sorry. I couldn't find the boxes with the cassette making stuff for like two weeks. I, d I didn't label the damn box. I uh, this is stu stupid. If you want your own late arrival cassette edition with exclusive audio skits and little bits, join the Patreon. The tier for that is called Mystery Solver. Or if you just want to get early release and exclusive short bits or ad-free HD episode packs or just like give me a tip once a month, please do. Thanks again. 2021 is already totally fucking crazy and my heart goes out to all those in the DC area after all the madness that unfolded earlier this month uh, in January. We have not had the inauguration yet, so we're like at that point where we're between the storming the Capitol and the inauguration. I just hope there's no violence and shit. Obviously, I'm not a big fan of people like hurting each other thus the podcast exists stay calm and be safe everybody
If you'd like to discuss this episode, please visit us in the comments or go to the Patreon page. If you'd like to know what I used to write this episode, then please visit the description box and look at the section called Sources. Music for this episode is by Three Chain Links. The super slow, spooky song that's featured in the cassette editions and also in this episode is Soft and Furious, Craving Ending. That has been slowed down a little bit in audacity by like 20%. It sounds pretty spooky, right? Unsolved Mysteries is property of its rights holders and is not affiliated with this show. This is simply a fan podcast. Please support the official release of Unsolved Mysteries.